Good morning. We're going to be in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 30. If you're using a Bible in the pew rack, it's on page 590, and we'll be considering Isaiah chapters 30 and 31. Isaiah 30 and 31, it's on page 590 in the Pew Bible. And if you would, stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord who carry out a plan but not mine, and who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, Shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation? For though his officials are at Zoan and his envoys reach Hanes, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit but shame and disgrace. An oracle of the beasts of the Negev. Through a land of trouble and anguish, from where come the lioness and the lion, the adder and the fly, flying fiery serpent, they carry their riches on the backs of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people that cannot profit them. Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab, who sits still. And now, now go write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, Prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant, and its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or to dip up water out of the cistern. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength, but you are unwilling." And you said, no, we will flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift steeds, therefore your pursuers shall be swift. 
A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on, top, on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. And you will give rain for the seed with which you sow the ground and bread, the produce of the ground, which will be rich and plenteous. In that day, your livestock will graze in large pastures, and the oxen and the donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder, which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. And on every lofty mountain and every high hill, there will be brooks running with water in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger and in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury and his tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of destruction and to place on the jaws of the peoples a bridle that leads astray. You shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept and gladness of heart as when one sets out to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord to the rock of Israel. And the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger and a flame of devouring fire with a cloudburst and storm and hailstones. The Assyrians will be terror-stricken at the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod and every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on them will be to the sound of tambourines and lyres. Battling with brandished arm, he will fight with them, for a burning place has long been prepared indeed for the king it is made ready. Its pyre made deep and wide with fire and wood in abundance, the breath of the Lord like a stream of sulfur kindles it. Chapter 31. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God. And their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. For thus the Lord said to me, 
As a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. Like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day, everyone will sh- shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. And the Assyrian shall fall by a sword, not of man. And a sword, not of man, shall devour him. And he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror, and his officers desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion, and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would remove all distractions, all diversions, everything that would draw our attention and our focus away from your word this morning. And I pray that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word. And I pray that you'd help us to receive the things that you would have to say to us from Isaiah And I pray that you'd help me as the preacher to communicate these things in a way that is clear, in a way that is honoring to you, in a way that is helpful for the people who sit before me. God, would you be with us in these moments? Would you glorify your name amongst us? And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Monarchy has been on our minds in recent days and weeks for obvious reasons. And in a sense, monarchy would have been on the minds of the ancients. So around the year 705 BC, Sennacherib has become king of Assyria. His father, Sargon V, had a long reign, not an illustrious reign like Queen Elizabeth, but he did rule from 722 to 705 BC. And now his son Sennacherib was the ruler of Assyria. Now, Sennacherib had a cockroach on his hands, and that cockroach was Merodach Baladan II of Babylon. And so for the first few years of his reign, Sennacherib tried to snuff out and squash this cockroach of Babylon. Eventually, he was successful, and and as he stamped out Babylon, that had certain implications for Judah. Judah could no longer, for one, turn to the defeated Babylon for help, but Assyria would now turn her attention to smaller nations such as Egypt and Judah now that the cockroach of Babylon was out of the way. So if Judah wanted political autonomy, and if Judah did not want to be under the thumb of Assyria deep into the future, then they, they had to look to new prospects. And King Hezekiah and the nation of Judah saw in Egypt an able ally. That's the historic setting of our passage. 
Judah turning to Egypt for assistance and support in the face of an Assyria that was rising in power and might. And in the face of this impending invasion, in the midst of this national crisis, Isaiah preaches. The prophet speaks. If you're taking notes this morning, James gave you an eight-point sermon, a nine-point sermon last week, so I'm going to just give you a normal three-point sermon this week. If you're taking notes, the first point is this, in verses 1 through 17, recognize the folly of rejecting Yahweh and his word. Recognize the folly of rejecting Yahweh and his word. What Judah had done, what the king has decided, was a shame and it was a disgrace. Yahweh indicts the people And you see it in our passage. They carry out a plan, but it is not mine, says the Lord. They make an alliance, but it is not rooted, driven by my spirit, says Yahweh. What are you doing, O people of Israel? You make an alliance with Egypt. You seek refuge in Pharaoh. You run and you ride to Egypt with all your treasures and all your riches. You traverse through treacherous lands filled with lions and venomous snakes You give up all your money, which leads to no profit. You put yourselves at risk only to place yourselves in deeper danger. You seek to increase your honor, but it will only be turned into shame. You look for security in Pharaoh, but you will become a laughingstock amongst the nations. Oh, and by the way, the one that you seek, the one that you're seeking for help, the one that you're running to for help, um, I have, I have a nickname for her. Egypt, the do-nothing. What, what are you doing, O Israel? What are you doing, O children of Israel? And perhaps you might be tempted to think, well, this is just a military blunder. It's just a political mistake. But Isaiah does not want us to be confused. He does not want us to be guessing. And so he further diagnoses the problem. We see that in verses 8 through 17. He unveils, he reveals to us the deeper problem that was happening in the nation of Israel. And this has been taking place for generations and for generations. You see, the problem with Israel, the problem with the chosen nation, and the problem with, what, with so much of what passes as evangelical Christianity today is that we have done this. Watch me, we have done this. We have closed the book. We have set it aside. We have begun to neglect the scriptures. We mute the prophet and we snuff out the preachers. And that would be bad enough. Close the book, silence the word, just kind of ignore it, put it on a shelf for it to collect dust. That would be bad enough, but it gets worse. Israel had set up for themselves false prophets who would prophesy smooth things. Or in the words of the Apostle Paul, The people of Israel had accumulated for themselves teachers to suit their own fancies and to suit their own passions and to tickle their ears. These statements are true for Israel, and these statements unfortunately are true for so much of what passes as Christianity today. The people cannot hear the truth because they do not want to hear the truth 
They want preachers who will speak only the positive and never the negative. They want preachers who will speak readily about the love of God and never mention his wrath. They want preachers who will not ruffle their feathers, who will not confront them on their sin and speak only that which further confirms them in their rebellion and folly. Listen, Israel and so much of evangelical Christianity or what passes as Christian today is that we want man-centered preachers who will speak man-centered ideas, or man-made ideas, sorry, derived from man-made wisdom, all aimed at pleasing man and exalting man in the name of God and dressed in religious garb. It's a ridiculous and it's a wicked thing. And Isaiah wants us to know that all such efforts at self-preservation, self exaltation based upon human wisdom and insight is will only lead to self-destruction Isaiah says O children of Israel you who have rebelled against Yahweh you are like a wall a city wall that is probably built of stone that has a breach in it that has a crack in it and you will come stumbling down and you are like um, a pottery vessel that has been smashed upon the stones and there is not a single piece of shard that is large enough for you to collect water from the cistern. That's what you're going to be like. Your alliance, your plan, your ideas, which are all based upon your intuition and your view of things that, 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 and you have not consulted me and you have not consulted my spirit all of that, it's going to lead to your self-destruction. Oh, but the Bible is so harsh. If only Israel had been taught better. If only he were given the right opportunities, then he would turn out to be a swell old chap. No. Because look with me to verse 15. And I think with a broken heart, And with a longing in his soul, Yahweh pours out his heart and his words to Israel. And this is what he says. He says, for thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Yahweh holds out rest. Yahweh holds out salvation, Yahweh holds out deliverance, and Yahweh holds out help. And what was Israel's response? It was an emphatic no. No, we will not turn to you, Yahweh. No, we will not look to you, our God. No, we will refuse your rest and salvation. Instead, we're going to mount our horses And we're going to get on our steeds. And we're going to ride away into the sunset, into the mighty arms of Egypt. That is our plan. Listen to me. The problem with the people of God when they go astray from him is not that they were not given enough opportunities. It is not that God was cold-hearted and kept himself aloof from them. It is not that people were well-meaning, but they just made some mistakes. No, the problem with Israel, the problem with the people of God, the problem with the church today, the problem with the human heart is that naturally 
left to ourselves. When God holds out his heart, his hands, and his help, it is so very natural for us to refuse such an offer, to spit in the face of God, to turn the other direction, and run with reckless abandon in that wrong direction. It was true for Israel, and it is true for us today. There's something that is desperately wrong with us, that that, that we would willingly and eagerly insist on going our own way when clearly it leads to our own self-destruction. There is something deeply wrong with the human race, and that includes every single person in this room, myself included. We'll come back to this, but... If that's the case, then while there is still time, and while there might be a spark of desire in our hearts, let us run away from our sin and the world and run towards our God. And if you're here and you're a person who um, finds security in the world, and if you're a person who's enamored by the latest cultural ideologies and dogmas, and you find yourself smoothing out the Word of God so that the Word of God does not offend those cultural sensitivities. Out of love for you, out of compassion for you, Isaiah alerts you to the folly of your path. He announces to you the self-destructive nature of your ways. You have been warned. So here's the question. If, if, if that's the situation, okay, so if Israel's that bad, and the human heart is so naturally rebellious against the living God, and if this is happening not just in Israel, but it's also happening in broader Christendom, it's, it's happening in arguably evangelical circles that we belong to, is there any hope? Will there be a dawn? And Isaiah assures us, in fact, that there will be. And I want to say this very clearly to you, my friends, that the hope for Israel and the hope for the church and the hope for the world is not found in earthly leaders and kings. It's not found in carefully constructed policies and laws. It's not found in the advancement of human ingenuity and technology. It's not found in the goodness of humanity, whether society Societally or individually. It's not found in your bank account or the economy of our nation. It's not found in the ordering of your life in just the right way. It's not found in a clean bill of health. It's not found in having the right friends and being perceived by others in a certain manner. No, the hope for you and me is found in the heart of God. It is found in the heart of Yahweh. It is found in the gracious disposition of his heart towards his people, the church. If you're taking notes, this is the second point. Long for the wholeness and healing that Yahweh promises. Long for the wholeness and healing that Yahweh promises. Look with me to verse 18. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. 
Blessed are all those who wait for him. And if, you're, if you've been in church for a while or you're aware or if you've read the Bible, then you're probably aware of the story of the prodigal son. There's two sons. One of them just asks for his inheritance early, which is a, an insult to the father, by the way. And then he goes and he spends his living on loose living and in a foreign land. And the father, day after day, week after week, month after month in the parable, is longing for his son to return. And he's waiting and he's waiting. And and the moment the son, he sees his son in the distance returning to his home and returning to his father, the father gets up off his seat and runs towards his prodigal son. The father was waiting. And I think it's a good picture of what Yahweh is doing here. He is eager to show his people favor. And he is eager to show his people grace. In fact, the God of Israel waits patiently so that he may show grace to his own people. He desires to exalt himself by showing mercy to you. And if you've been in us, with us in this series of Isaiah, you know that there is much judgment in the book of Isaiah. And the judgment comes because of the people's rebellion and sin. But make no mistake about it, the people's rebellion and the people's sin does not exhaust the grace and the mercy of our great God. While the people rebel, Yahweh will wait. And while the people are busying themselves with sin, Yahweh is waiting there patiently so that they might return to him, so that he might rise up to show grace to them. So let's just talk about this for a few moments. What what awaits the people of God? What is it that Yahweh has promised to his own people? And, And perhaps we can use words like restoration and wholeness and healing to describe the kind of thing that awaits those who trust in Yahweh. First, it says, those who wait wait upon Yahweh, those who cry out to him will be taught by him. He will be their teacher and he will be their guide. And he will so satisfy their hearts that there will no longer be divided allegiances. Statues will be taken down and smashed. Images will be discarded and thrown away, and the idols of the land will be forgotten and a thing of a bygone era. So those are kind of spiritual, that's spiritual restoration amongst the people, theological restoration amongst the people. But then he goes on to speak of physical conditions of this restoration as well. There'll be no more weeding. There'll be no more food shortages. There'll be no more droughts. There'll be no more famines. There'll be no more pestilence. There'll be no more, I would presume, COVID-19 and things like it. In a a phrase, then, the the curse will be lifted from the earth. And some of the things that I just mentioned, they're not super serious necessarily in our society. We we don't experience or we we don't feel the effects of droughts and food shortages as much as people in other parts of the world. But what Isaiah is trying to capture for us is that the curse and its effects will be gone from your life and mine if we belong to Christ. No more cancer. 
No more Alzheimer's or dementia. No more corruption in the government. No more tax hikes and interest rate increases. No more job loss or financial desperation. No more adultery. No more separation or divorce. No more abuse or violence. And I'm sure that there's people in this room who even in the past week have cried yourselves to bed because of life is overwhelming and the circumstances of your life are sad. Listen to me. In this coming kingdom, which is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be no more tears. And then Isaiah ends a section of this passage with these thoughts. While, Isaiah, or while God is the one who will bring, bring the blows upon Israel for their rebellion, and while God is the one who is sovereign over our lives, including our trials and our suffering, it is he who will bind up the brokenness of his people and he, who will bring healing to their wounds. I want you to hear this very clearly. If you are here today and you're breathing and you can hear my words, then wholeness or healing are held out for you today in the name of Yahweh. Wholeness and healing and restoration are held out for you today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But maybe that doesn't convince you. Imagine that you're stuck on a raft in the middle of the ocean. You have plenty of access to water for obvious reasons, but you have no food. You have little rations. Eventually, you'll be famished, obviously. You'll be starving. You'll be, begin dreaming about food, perhaps salivating about it. You'll have hunger pangs. You'll grow weak and tired. Your mood will be lower as well. And many of you are aware of the great British... Christian author, uh, C.S. Lewis, and and this is what C.S. Lewis says concerning this man. The fact that this man's hungry, it doesn't prove that that he will get food eventually. So, So the fact that he is hungry does not prove that he will be fed or that he will be given a meal. But the fact that he is hungry does prove that he belongs to a race that repairs its body by eating and that he belongs to a world where eatable substances exist. And the argument goes like this. The very fact that people long for paradise and the very fact that most human beings, if you kind of push them even just a little bit, long for something better and long for something more and know that there is something deeply wrong with the world in which we live, the fact that we long for a paradise is a good indication that such a place exists and that some men and some women will in fact enjoy it. And you might be sitting there thinking like, these people are crazy, man. They believe in a literal hell and a literal heaven. We live in the 21st century with modern science and technology. How could you possibly believe in the afterlife? There's no proof for it. And you're right. I have zero studies to prove to you the existence of the afterlife. But I would say this. That even if you don't formally believe in the afterlife... And even if you don't assent to the ideas of heaven and hell, 
all of us live in this world which is broken, and all of us experience the cursed nature of this world, none of us are exempt from hardships, suffering, and evil. Which means then that all of us seek ways to lift the curse and alleviate the pain. All of us are finding ways to cope and survive in this cruel and harsh world. So my question for you today is, in order to escape the suffering, where do you run? In order to alleviate the pain, what balm do you apply? In order to make sense of the mess, whom do you consult as an authority? Where do you look to for hope and help, my friends? And while I don't have time to survey every single other option on the face of planet Earth, I do have the time to extend to you the offer that is available in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we will touch on throughout this passage and throughout the rest of this sermon. But for now, let's keep moving on in our passage. As Isaiah keeps preaching, he envisions a day in which the people of God are singing. And so all of a sudden we hear music. These future Israelites in verse 29 are singing a song of victory. And you'll notice there in verse 29 that it is a song which is sung at night, which is reminiscent of the Passover meal. And so the the song being sung here is about a great and final Passover, when Yahweh will defeat his enemies and deliver his own people. It's it's talking about a great day of salvation that is coming for the people of God. And it all culminates in verse 33. And it says this, There has been long prepared for the king of Assyria, a pyre deep and wide. And a pyre is a heap of combustible material. Here it's made up of wood. And what it would be used for is it would be used to burn a corpse as part of a funeral ceremony. And so the idea here is that Assyria and Sennacherib will be defeated and the king will die in humiliation. So the takeaways for us then is that Yahweh will restore his own people and he will capably destroy the enemies of his people. But friend, is this your hope today? That you belong both body and soul to the Lord Jesus. That your wholeness comes not from, self, not from attempts at self-creation and self-belief, but from trusting in God and hearing his instruction. That your pursuit in life is not the things of this world, but a deeper and fuller experience of the grace of God. That your healing comes not from self-help gurus and telling yourselves that you're good enough, but from the tender hands of Yahweh who loves to bind up the brokenness of his people. That your fear is not the influences and culture shapers of our day, but your fear is the Holy One of Israel. And that leads me to my third and final point. If you're taking notes this morning... Turn to Yahweh as your Savior, lest you meet him as your judge. Turn to Yahweh as your Savior, lest you meet him as your judge. 
And for the sake of time, I'm not going to walk through um, these nine verses kind of section by section. Um, but it's, a, it's essentially repetitive of chapter 30. Or to put another way, the, the ideas of chapter 30 are repeated in chapter 31. And so I just want to draw your attention to th- two themes that come through again. Number one, that trusting in Egypt is folly because Yahweh will protect his people. And number two, fearing Assyria is unnecessary because Yahweh will destroy his enemies. So the takeaway for us is this, that Israel... You are looking to Egypt for help, but they are entirely useless. And, and, and Israel, you are, you are looking to Egypt for help because you're concerned about Assyria, but let it be known to you, Assyria is going to be destroyed. To put it slightly dis- differently, Israel, instead of looking to Egypt, you should have been looking to Yahweh for help. And Israel, instead of being preoccupied with Assyria, you should have been preoccupied with crying out to Yahweh for deliverance and rescue. In photography, there's two ways to bring the camera into focus. Number one, there's the autofocus way where you press the button halfway down, the picture comes into focus, and then you just click it down all the way, and there you have a focused picture. If you're a little bit more advanced, there's the manual way of bringing an image into focus, and that is uh, turning the focus ring on your lens, causing the subject to come into focus, and then capturing the image. And I hope that the two main themes of these two chapters are coming into focus for you. That there is an unimaginably good kingdom coming for the children of God. But there are also unimaginably awful prospects for the rebels. There is an unimaginably good kingdom coming for the children of God, but there is also unimaginably awful prospects for the rebels. Yahweh is eager to show mercy to you. Yahweh is eager to show mercy to his children, but because he is a God of justice, he must render punishment for those who are idolatrous and act wickedly. So which, which side of the line do we find ourselves this morning? Because it's a pretty drastic difference, isn't it? it, it it's, it, I was jokingly thinking it's like the difference between going out for sushi lunch or Swiss chalet lunch. And if you know me, you know which one I prefer a lot more. <laughs> but that's a bit trite. So, so it, it might be like the difference between being born in North Korea or South Korea. It, 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 might, be like, it might be the difference between being um, above Uh, the threshold or under the threshold when you're trying to escape Ukraine as a refugee, there's a great difference between the prospect for the children and the prospect for the rebels. So Isaiah, can you help us out? It's a pretty important question. Whether I'm headed for everlasting shame and destruction or whether I'm headed for everlasting honor and delight. Which one is it, Isaiah? Can you help us out? And without giving any sort of theological caveat, which can kind of cloud the conversation, let me just say this. It's up to you. Up to me? Yes, it's up to you. But doesn't God determine everything from the beginning to the end? Yes, he does. So isn't he sovereign over the affairs of history, including my life? Yes, he is. 
So in what sense then is, is it up to me? Because there is still a response required of you. Have you been listening? Isaiah says, I've been hinting at it all the way along. Chapter 30, verse 15, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Chapter 30, verse 18, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Chapter 30, verse 19, for a people shall dwell in Zion and Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And then with bold font, yellow highlighter, sharpie underlining, with an exclamation point, Isaiah writes these words. Chapter 31, verses 6 and 7. Turn to him, from whom you have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day, everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. For Israel, their temporal outcome would be dependent upon whether they responded to the prophet's call. And for us here today, our eternal destiny hangs in the balance and it is determinative upon how you respond to the prophet's call. And perhaps you're here today and you have come from a long line of Christian heritage. And your grandparents and parents have tried to pass the faith on to you, and, but you have largely avoided Christianity like the plague. But somehow, in the providence of God, you find yourself in church this morning. Or perhaps you've grown up in the church, and you've been taught the faith from a young age, and you know the Bible stories, and you are aware of God requires of you. But you really couldn't be bothered the things of God are uninteresting to you. The commandments of God seem like a cruel and unusual punishment. Or maybe you're here today, you're not actively running away from God. You're not intentionally altering his word or to suit your fantasies, but you're tempted to return to Egypt for help. To return to your old way of life for just a bit of relief. To dabble just a bit in sin and unrighteousness. It's not that bad, really. Or maybe you're here today, and because of the pressures of those around you, and believe you, me, the pressures are strong, alive, and well, but the pressures are strong. Family members, friends, classmates, and supervisors, the television and social media, cultural influencers and celebrities, and just a general sense of cultural sensibilities. You're allured to believe them more than this. Surely, the Bible is misguided on matters of gender and sexuality and marriage. Surely, the Bible's teaching is, a, is oppressive and hinders us from expressing our truest selves. The Bible is a very old book. It's chock full of outdated ideas and mythical stories with little relevance for us today, except for those who need a religious crutch. Wherever you're at today, whether those things describe you or not, the call of Isaiah 
and the call of the Spirit is that you would return to Yahweh. Turn from your sin and turn back to God. Turn away from the world and turn to Christ. Turn away from loving and prioritizing everything else but God and begin loving and pursuing the knowledge of God above all else. Turn away from finding rest and satisfaction in things like money, success, status, and sex and find rest for your souls in the Lord Jesus. Turn away from your self-rule, which is self-destructive, and turn to Christ as the Lord of your life, which leads to wholeness and healing. Turn to him as your savior and thereby avoid his judgment. Turn to him and live, my friends. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for your word. Be gracious to us so we can see our folly and, and grant us the gift of faith so that we are able to believe your promises and your word above all earthly wisdom and authorities. You're so gracious to us. You're so merciful to us. And we want to live our lives in light of that. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.